There is no health without mental health. Greetings and welcome to Beyond Madness from me, your host, Professor Christopher Paul Sabo. I'm a psychiatrist and this podcast series is dedicated to the discipline of psychiatry, discussing issues that, whilst emanating directly from the discipline, have implications for society generally. The series engages thought leaders from within the discipline and beyond to assist in exploring these issues and providing insights into some of the thinking that contributes to the richness of psychiatry. Beyond Madness is proudly brought to you by Adcock Ingram OTC, sponsors of Brave. Pregnancy can and should be a special time, not without challenges and discomfort, but ultimately a life-giving and life-affirming experience where birth of a child should add value and meaning. What if it doesn't? What if things go wrong for mom, emotionally? What if the pregnancy occurs in childhood or adolescence? On today's podcast, our topic is pregnancy and psychiatry, and I am pleased to welcome my two guests and colleagues, psychiatrists, Drs. Karina Marseille and Alexandra, or Alex Meister. Are you comfortable with Alex? Yes. Excellent. Now, Karina works in private practice, and she has a special interest in perinatal psychiatry, which was the subject of her PhD. She is an honorary appointee in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of the Witwatersrand and is a member of the International Marseille Society, an organization dedicated to perinatal mental health. Alex works in the Department of Psychiatry at Chris Honey Baragwanath Academic Hospital and is a lecturer in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of the Witwatersrand. The subject of her Master's in Medicine degree was antenatal depression and she runs a multidisciplinary maternal mental health clinic. Karina and Alex, welcome, and thank you for joining us. Am I correct in terms of your designations yes. and where you're at? Good, um, okay. Thanks for having us. Yes, oh, thanks for having us. Absolute pleasure. Now, I posed a couple of questions up front that lead us directly into the conversation that I wanted to have today. And without overstating things, and as I've understood both of your writings for the publication, of which I'm editor-in-chief, South African Psychiatry, the occurrence of psychiatric problems during the perinatal period has profound implications for not just the mother, but for society. And I'm not sure to what extent these implications are really understood, hence the need, in my view, to have this conversation. So, Karina, I'm going to start with you, and I want to explore this clinical concept of perinatal depression, which, whilst not the only psychiatric problem which can arise during pregnancy, is a prominent one. Most people tend to understand that if one experiences a depressive episode related to pregnancy, that it's likely to occur after birth or delivery, i.e. postpartum. But in reality, this is not exclusively so. Hence, you have referred to perinatal depression and one refers to that. So would you please just uh, elaborate on the concept and maybe provide a description of what the clinical features are? Okay, so perinatal depression is not really that different from a normal depression. It's just the time that it occurs. Right. So we usually talk about perinatal depression being from the time of conception up until the baby's first birthday. Okay. So it extends. It actually. extends up until a, you know, one year postpartum. Right. So I think there is this understanding or had been an understanding that postpartum depression was something more immediate, whereas in reality it can actually occur over an extended period after delivery of the baby. Absolutely. And I think um, also historically, um, depression in pregnancy has not been um, talked about a lot. 
um, it's the focus is much more being on the postnatal depression, but the mental health issues during pregnancy are also vitally important to identify and treat. And I think that obviously the mental health and mental well-being of the mother has potential implications for how she conducts herself during pregnancy and how that impacts upon the developing fetus, the infant. Absolutely. So the risk um, is is that for the fetus, right? Um, as well as for the mother and her, if she's depressed, her access to care, her ability to look after herself, um, including you know good nutrition or potentially using substances to cope. Um, so there's risk factors for the mum, but also risk factors for the baby. Um, we talk about maternal stress mm-hmm. um, as being teratogenic. Okay. Could you want to? Elaborate a little bit on that because I think that's very interesting as a concept. So uh, what we know from from sort of studies is that maternal stress has a direct impact on the infant's development. Um, So your mom's um, biochemistry in her brain is often mimicked by the fetus. Mm -hmm. Um, So so babies don't get a good start when mom is is depressed. Right. So I think one of the issues that 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 probably arises from from this is the use of antidepressants because obviously you don't want to not treat and so often there would be some kind of reservations because we mentioned teratogenicity in terms of maternal um, health what about treatments so you're right no decision in pregnancy is risk-free right Um, remember that there's also non-medication options To treat depression. So that's what I think we need to to look at. Um, But we also know that it is far more important and less detrimental to treat depression with antidepressants than to leave it untreated. So when you look at the risk and benefit, the benefit of treating outweighs the risks. So just coming back to this concept of depression, so just for, for the listeners, I mean, when you speak about depression, you're saying, well, it's the same, whether it's, you know, perinatal or outside of that. But are there any unique characteristics or, or, or features or how would you describe depression generally in terms of understanding? So depression generally is a two or more um, week period of feeling down, depressed, hopeless and having no enjoyment in life, what we call anhedonia, not being able to enjoy things you previously used to um, enjoy, um, as well as a whole bunch of sort of physical symptoms like changes in appetites, changes in energy levels, cognitive changes, um, poor memory, poor concentration, um, things like that. So it's a whole bunch of symptoms. Now, obviously, in pregnancy, things like changes in appetite and fatigue and energy levels can overlap with a lot of the pregnancy symptoms. Right. So we don't often look at those too closely. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that was one of the issues that I wanted to raise. How do you tease out what might be the challenges of pregnancy, because I mentioned those in my introduction, versus an emerging problem that suggests that you need a different level of care as opposed to this will simply pass? And you mentioned the two-week period, but I mean... What kind of teases out the difference? Is it just duration? Is it the extent to which it impacts on your ability to function? What would you say? See, yes, I think it is the duration. It's the impact on functioning, Mm -hmm. um, on social functioning, 
as well as occupational functioning. So relationships. And I think <clears throat> pregnancy is a, a time where um, for the couple it's important to to look at relationships. You know, if relationships right. are suffering, the pregnancy is, is going to be uh, more unpleasant. Right. So, you know, are your depressive symptoms um, impacting your relationships and your family? Um, and if that is the case, then definitely we like to treat. So there's something that you said in one of your articles, which is that we need to look at the antenatal period in terms of potential risk. So depression that has occurred before pregnancy may be likely to occur during pregnancy or should be seen as a potential risk for pregnancy being a time when the depression might raise its head again. Definitely. So if you have a woman who has a previous history of mental health problems, those are the women you really want to watch closely during pregnancy and postnatally. Right. So I think that one has to be very specific in terms of assessing pregnant women for prior psychiatric history. Yes, absolutely. In fact, all pregnant women should be screened for mental health okay. conditions. So. I'm certainly going to come to that. What about anxiety? Because you've also mentioned anxiety in the articles that you've written. Mm. So depression and anxiety are quite closely linked. And we often find that um, there's a lot of comorbidity, meaning that they often occur together, mm -hmm. depressive symptoms and anx anxious symptoms. Um, and we also know that pregnancy is state of heightened anxiety. So pregnant women are likely to present with a lot of anxious symptoms. Mm -hmm. um, in reality, um, you, when we talk about perinatal depression, we often include anxiety and we have a broader term, common perinatal mental health disorders. Right. Um, and it often is helpful to put the two together because it's quite difficult sometimes to tease out. Mm. Um, you know, is it purely anxiety? Is it purely depression? Um, is it a combination of both? And often the treatment is the same. So it's not critical that that um, differentiation is made. What is important is that the woman gets the care she needs. Now, the issue of the, the partner. I mean, to what extent are healthy relationships protective in this regard? I would say they're quite protective. <laughs> <laughs> Without necessarily saying, quote me the science. I mean, just, you know, from an experiential point of view, when you assess and, and, and deal with, with, with pregnant women and their emotional well-being. So what we do know is that poor partner support mm. um, and unplanned pregnancy mm -hmm. um, are risk factors right. for perinatal mental health disorders. So counter to that, if you have a supporting, loving partner, yes. it is a protective factor. Yeah. So I think one is looking at risk in terms of what might contribute to risk. Now, here's a, here's a question which I'm just going to throw into the mix because we are talking about depression. How common, if at all, does suicide happen during pregnancy? So, in fact, in high-income countries… Yeah. Um, Maternal suicide is the leading cause of maternal death, not bleeding, right? not preeclampsia or eclampsia, but suicide, which I find quite, it quite seems, shocking. It seems counterintuitive that you are carrying life, but you would take your life. So that must signal 
levels of despair that transcend the life-giving function of, of pregnancy. And I mean, how do you get to that point where there is no potential intervention or has it been found, as is often the case in psychiatry generally, that the person who kills suicide often saw a professional not that long before they ultimately determined that they're going to take their life. So that's really an issue for me, to, to, to what extent in pregnancy that is recognized and understood as a potential risk. Because I don't know that people typically associate suicide and pregnancy. I think probably people aren't thinking about it yeah. and they're not making those associations. And I think that people sometimes overvalue the sort of, well, you're not feeling great because you're pregnant. Right. And, oh, it's just your pregnancy hormones. Okay. And don't necessarily take, you know, the problems more seriously than that. Alex? Um, I think what's also so important is this sort of way that pregnancy might be idealized and this mm -hmm. um, sort of unspoken pressure that women must experience it as a positive experience. And so I think women are maybe quite anxious or um, worried about expressing distressing feelings or negative feelings because of a fear of stigma, a fear of judgment. And so I worry that maybe they don't seek help more out of a fear of the consequences of that, how they'll be perceived. Um, and this has happened even, you know, in the media where, mm. where people are blamed and shamed in terms of even acknowledging depression or acknowledging a need for help. So I think people um, sort of with this pressure on social media have this um, need to sort of describe pregnancy, the peripartum period, as only positive and aren't often very open to expressing negative feelings or the difficulties. And so this puts women um, who are pregnant or postpartum under this undue pressure that maybe they are the only ones who have negative experiences or that it's a sign they're a bad mother or that they shouldn't be a parent. And so there's a lot of sort of emotional stress that comes with that. So I would worry that people aren't presenting. And then also I think um, you described it really nicely as our need to sort of help us understand that suicide is a a kind of symptom of despair and difficulty and not something that is to be blamed so that these women are really feeling that if they aren't able to cope or if they wouldn't be able to look after their child, then what would happen to that child? So often it is out of an inherent worry about this child and what it means. And it isn't because they don't want to look after a child. And I think sometimes if you don't have a lot of social support or you don't have a family to lean on or a partner, right. that pressure on one individual to look after a new life and take all the responsibility for a new life can be quite overwhelming. So I think we have to pick up that sense of overwhelm, that sense of difficulty, yes. and see if we can't provide support in order to then sort of um, help women to go through, you know, um, either seeking help, accessing treatment, but also have, I suppose, a community or a yes. um, that, that helps with this really overwhelming task. And I think it all starts with honest communication, where you're able to just say how you're feeling. And just because you're feeling off or you're struggling doesn't necessarily mean anything more than that. But I think that before it becomes something more than it should be, it's important to kind of communicate and to be heard and for the necessary support to be provided. Because as I said initially, I mean, pregnancy, we can idealize it, but it's not without challenges and it's not without discomfort. So unfortunately, things do happen. But as I 
kind of said earlier, I mean, suicide for me is not typically something that I would associate with, with pregnancy. So it's kind of interesting for me to hear that the number one cause of mortality during pregnancy are not pregnancy-related complications in terms of the obstetrical complications, but in terms of mental health. And I'm not sure that that's particularly well-known. It's not well known. And as I say, those are our studies coming from high income countries. Right. We don't actually have any data for, um, for South Africa on those, on those statistics. We certainly do have data though for perinatal depression. And so I want to talk a little bit about the extent of the, the problem because, you know, we often talk about problems and, and the way in which we talk about them makes it seem like they're everywhere. And of course, I also don't want to create the impression that because someone's having a bad day or having a difficult period, that that means, oops, you're on your way to seeing a psychiatrist. Not necessarily so. So one just has to be careful to just put things in perspective. But in terms of perinatal depression, I was, I, I was kind of curious to see that, in fact, it seems to be more common in developing world, maybe in South Africa, than in high-income developed countries. Karina, would you comment on that? Absolutely. I think our prevalence in South Africa is three times the rate of the prevalence in high-income countries. So if you look at a sample of women in this country, about 40% of women will be presenting with perinatal mental health problems. That's significant. It is very significant. And I mean, is that stratified by geography or by class or by race? What are some of the defining variables epidemiologically that contribute to that? Are there any? So I think we have a unique um, situation in South Africa where our risk factors are, include poverty. Mm. Um, unemployment. Unemployment. High levels of um, interpersonal violence. That's a big one. The intimate partner violence. Intimate partner violence. Um, and as well as our high HIV rates. So these things all do impact, and that is why our um, our rates are much higher because we have this kind of unique uh, mix of really significant risk, risk factors. So we're kind of popping the balloon in terms of the stereotype of pregnancy as being all wonderful and beautiful and lovely, as it should be, as I said, not without discomfort or, or challenges. And we're getting into some of the real um, or some of the realities of the pregnant state, and specifically looking at some of the risk factors for antenatal, perinatal, postnatal depression. One of the issues you mentioned, unplanned pregnancy, and I think that, you know, Alex, I'm going to bring you in there, because obviously to some extent that probably impacts on uh, adolescent and, and, and childhood pregnancy. But before I get there, the issue of consequences, I mean, you know, if we're talking about antenatal, postnatal, or perinatal de depression, consequences for mother, well, we've touched on the issue of suicide. How does it impact on their parenting? And then how does that impact upon the infant? Karina. So if you're a mom with depression, it's very difficult to be on your A-game and to be a good parent. Um, so you may not engage with your baby um, you may not be able to play, to laugh, to smile, to talk to your baby, which are all critical for your baby's development. But not only that, we find that infants of moms who are depressed um, are often malnourished. Mm -hmm. They have high incidence of illness. Um, their cognitive um, and motor development is usually delayed. Um, so it, there's often a decreased rates of breastfeeding and sometimes the immunizations are even delayed. Right. So there's a lot of 
physical um, consequences. consequences for these infants um, that will be with them for the rest of their lives. So this is what I'm understanding is that there's a kind of a cycle of pathology where you start out with mom, but it actually impacts on infant and then generationally, how does that then lead to further pathology down the line? And if you're not taking care of maternal health, you're actually running the risk of generational uh, pathology that goes from one to the next to the next. Is that too radical an idea or is that a reality? No, I don't think that's radical at all. I think this is why it is so critical and this is why we, we want to treat these women because we want to give their infants and their fetuses the best start in life. Yes. Um, and it's it's a time-sensitive period. We can't wait. Mm-hmm. It needs to be addressed early right. and effectively. Right. Um, and if we are able to give those infants a better chance in life, they will in turn grow up to be healthier adults physically yes. and mentally, and hopefully they themselves have healthier pregnancies and are able to parent. So so this whole issue or idea of of maternal health and the health of the nation is actually quite closely linked actually and you know it, it sounds like a truism but when you start to look at the actual consequences of ill health in the maternal time certainly emotionally you begin to see how it plays itself out generationally which then brings me to the issue of screening because obviously you've been quite a strong advocate for screening programs and looking at mental health within the context of maternal health. Do you want to comment a little bit on that, Karina? So um, the antenatal period is quite an ideal time be- to screen women because they are in contact with health services. Um, the problem is, is that health services aren't geared towards thinking about mental health. So if we were able to introduce a screening at that time where women were in contact with healthcare providers... Um, to pick up if they were at risk of mental health problems um, and then be able to refer and treat, um, that would be ideal. Yes. The challenges with that, obviously, are it takes time to screen. Mm-hmm. A lot of the screening tools are quite cumbersome. Um, and obviously, we're looking at really quite resource-limited settings. Right. But there are very simple screening possibilities um, that do exist which don't require extensive training or extensive time, but could alert you to the fact that there could be a problem. I think there's that uh, questionnaire, the Woolly 2 question. Yes, so <laughs> there are. Um, basically, what we're looking at introducing is uh, basically a two-item oral question. Right. So it's it's not a pen and paper, doesn't require any calculation. It also doesn't require literacy. Mm-hmm. can literally ask a woman two questions yep. um, and with very reasonable accuracy um, screen whether they are, are at risk of having a mental health problem or not. And those two questions are? So the two questions are, in the last month, have you often been bothered by feeling down, depressed, or hopeless? Mm-hmm. Um, and the second question is, in the last month, have you um, have difficulty, have you been bothered by not being able to enjoy things that you previously enjoyed? Okay, so they've they've kind of identified these two questions as key in being reasonably predictive of somebody who potentially needs to move on in the system to have a more detailed examination yes, of their yes. emotional 
So we wouldn't say that those questions are diagnostic. No, I think it's very important to actually qualify that. But we are then able to select out those women that answer yes to either one or both of those questions Mm. and refer them for further assessment. So what we're saying, though, is that there needs to be a system. Yes. Where we start out with maternal health. We include screening for mental health, understanding the implications of poor mental health, as we've discussed. But then there needs to be an onward referral system that enables one to refer the person on for care. And my understanding is that as much as policy might provide for that, or that is kind of idealized as how it should be, to what extent that happens in reality is another story. Do you want to comment on that? So we have lovely policies in this country that advocate for the inclusion of um, mental health services at primary health care level, as well as policies that um, look at in- integrating mental health care in the antenatal setting and postnatal clinic setting. Mm-hmm. Um, but like a lot of our policies, the problem really is implementation. Yeah. We're not able to implement our policies well. And... I think implementation often comes down to lack of political will or money, mm-hmm. a lack of funding. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is why advocacy is so important um, because we need to really convince the key players that this is a an important area of need that has intergenerational effects. I think that's something that has become very apparent to me in looking at the issue that, in fact, you know, pregnancy is kind of the gateway to maternal health, which is the gateway to infant health, which is the gateway to the nation's health. And so I think that is a very important concept to kind of keep in mind uh, when advocating to politicians, I suppose, and people who are in a position to give effect to policy, that they actually understand what the implications are. And I'm not sure that it's necessarily that widely understood, to be honest with you. I don't know what you'd say to that. I don't think it is widely understood. And I think that um, if you actually sort of reduce it to numbers, it's probably quite a cost-effective way. I think without a shadow of doubt. I mean, we've got the services. Improving services. Absolutely. I mean, the, the, the services are there. The question is, how do you connect services? And how do you make sure that there's adequate uh, provision of services and the knock-on effect in terms of effective services is better health. And I think that, you know, you can't put a value on that financially or otherwise. But I'm I'm going to come to Alex now because I want to touch. So we've been talking about pregnancy within the context of adult pregnancy. I didn't qualify that up front because I wanted to get to what Alex has an interest in. And that's the phenomenon of child and adolescent pregnancy. How would you define that? So um, broadly, there is a little bit of um, lack of consensus in terms of our definitions of an adolescent. Um, But I think we're looking at pregnancies basically that occur, you know, from um, childhood all the way up to around 19 years is the definition we we currently have used in our research in South Africa. Um, Some countries will extend that to you know, less than 20 years, and some will sort of keep it at 18, but basically um, before adulthood. Um, what is so difficult around this is is really that concept of a child having to bring up 
a child and, and yes. the repercussions for their life, their parenting, the life of that infant or, or child and, and how that might have consequences. So really, as well as having all the same difficulties and stresses and risk factors as an adult would yes. in pregnancy, you have a combination of other both physical and emotional difficulties going through the process as a child um, and a child who potentially is dependent, um, so not able to make decisions um, sort of that control your life, your health, um, your outcomes very independently um, and having to incorporate sort of that into the way a pregnancy is felt and experienced. Um, so it is a very vulnerable time. So as you said, it's a vulnerable time. What are the, what are the threats to the young girl or woman as a consequence of pregnancy during this time period? So from a mental health point of view, I think we can't separate um, one's mental health from those social determinants of health that we discussed earlier. And our problem is really this idea that that young girls are so vulnerable in terms of their their opportunities in society in a country like South Africa. So really one of the biggest implications is that leaving school early and mm -hmm. not having opportunities to complete school, that um, cycle of poverty where then without um, being able to, to complete school or have opportunities for employment due to perhaps childcaring, there are difficulties in terms of maybe progressing or getting out of a difficult um sort of um, situation. situation economically, then there are also implications in terms of um, the, the maybe what determined the pregnancy itself. So perhaps then feeling obligated to stay in relationships that are not healthy or not good um, mm. because of perhaps um, financial support for the baby or emotional support for for the child. So, so the determinants of, for example, that interpersonal violence yes. or, or um, we have young girls who unfortunately get kicked out of their homes, for example, and, and face um, consequences such as homelessness, you know, when parents find out. Um, so there really are a lot of um, sort of determinants in terms of their, their social standing in society, their potential um, in future. Mm. And then also a feeling of really perhaps not being equipped to handle, you know, what's happening and then not being um not necessarily having support in terms of helping them on how to parent and how that, yes. that is going to look. So I just wanted to touch on sexual violence and adolescent pregnancy because I think there's a link. Would you want to comment on that? Yeah, so we unfortunately have, have um, I would describe maybe as horrific um, mm. levels of mm. sexual violence in our country. Um, and I think young women are, are really at risk. So the fact that even our HIV rates in young women are so much higher than um, in our male population um, and even HIV infection starts years prior in young females than in males sort of speaks to that violence. So there really isn't necessarily um, a feeling of being able to um, be in control of your sort of sexual development, your time of um, sort of sexual debut when you are able to say no to negotiate that. And that can be both. Um, from a sort of traumatic experience, example, in a rape, but even in terms of this um, this lack of equality in terms of social and economic opportunity, I think a lot of our young women are, are forced into arrangements or into circumstances where they feel that they are needing to engage in sexual activity in order to try support themselves financially or their families. And right. so there's this element of perhaps an older male partner Transactional. who provides, yes, and, and that these these young girls are feeling um, that they are needing to, 
to engage in this in order to help them or their families in in terms of financial difficulty. So that's a phenomenon that's very common in South Africa. Okay. So I was looking more also at, at, at direct risks to the individual, depression, sexually transmitted diseases, and in fact, mortality. Do you want to comment on, on those kind yeah, of so, threats? Yeah, so all all of those are um, high risk. So both in terms of, of that sort of physical threat, in terms of, of rape or physical assault, um, that's quite common. And then also um, we mentioned specifically HIV, but all sexually transmitted infections. Um, and that is also in that inability to negotiate, for example, safe sex practices. So not being able to negotiate using... Um, a condom in terms of getting a partner to to agree to and not having access to contraception, um, which is something that also is a, is a big problem right. in our young girls. So if you are in a situation which is violent, um, you maybe don't have the means to get out of that situation. You also are not perhaps aware of of ways to to get support and to be able to to, for example, get post exposure prophylaxis in right. terms of risks of HIV um, and and really lack of knowledge to even know what is available, what your access is, and even sometimes to not even know that what you're experiencing is traumatic or isn't sure. appropriate. So these young girls not really understanding that power differential or that exploitation that occurs in these relationships where there's a big age gap, for example, or a power differentiation um, between themselves and, and a partner, um, and then not feeling able to voice their difficulties. I was kind of curious about the the, the um, incidence of, of adolescent girl mortality associated with pregnancy. So again, our rates of suicide are even higher in our adolescents than in our adults in terms of attempts of suicide and actually um, completed suicide. So I know um, Karina mentioned that we don't have very good stats in South Africa and mm. that the rates, it's the first cause of mortality in first world countries, I think what's important to note is that it's unlikely that our rates are lower. Right. It's just that our other physical um, complications in pregnancy might be higher um, mm. in terms of risks. So that really our, our risks are very high in terms of, um, of suicidal behavior. So, for example, in our hospital, we experience a lot of um, young girls whose first presentation is um, because of an overdose attempt or a suicide attempt when they find out they're they are pregnant, pregnant right. um, and so that often is a, a very high risk. Tell me about uh, infants of adolescent or childhood pregnancies, the offspring. What are the consequences for them? So from a physical point of view, there really are more complications in pregnancy. So that would be things like hypertension, um, illnesses like preeclampsia, um, difficulties in labor. All of those are very high risk. Um, also our rates of, for example, these infections that aren't treated during pregnancy, um, poor nutritional status, like mm. iron deficiency, all of those things are more common in adolescents. And then also um, from a mental health point of view, so all this risk in terms of um, higher rates of depression, of anxiety, of difficulties emotionally, of coping, of poor level, levels of support. So those predispose us to that maternal stress syndrome, which right. then affects the way the babies develop. So right. those babies can be born premature with a low birth weight. Um, there can be what's called intrauterine growth restriction where they don't grow um, well. Um, and then they also will be grown with a, a smaller birth weight right. um, compared to other infants. So that's all from a physical point of view. And then obviously from an emotional point of view, as Karina mentioned, um, that parenting has a huge determinant 
in terms of the infant's health. Health. So we often think of infant needs as things like their nutritional needs, um, their needs, you know, to sleep, to eat, to be looked after. But people often underestimate that importance of their emotional needs being mm-hmm. met, and so really that's the most significant determinant of health overall. Right. And so these kids, if they experience these parents who are not available or not, um not able to parent, um, what happens is their brains don't develop the same way. And so that risk is, especially as Karina said, very time dependent in that first thousand days of life. So your first two years are so significant in terms of developing how you interact with people. So Mm. that parenting you receive determines how you learn as a child um, how you have an impact on the world and the world has an impact on you. Mm. And so that's the development of what we call empathy and our relationships in future. And so how we learn through the relationships we have in childhood and that very early childhood, even if it is through a granny or another support, a father, you know, which is why those relationships are so important, sets the tone for how your interpersonal relationships will be for the rest of your life, how you will cope with stress, how you will manage when there are um how your resilience will be in terms of how you manage in the future. And so that sets up our personalities, how we develop as people in terms of our capacities to have a thriving, successful life in future. So these infants do have a high risk. Um, I think, like you mentioned before, we really aren't trying to pathologize pregnancy or that period. So we have some incredible adolescents who become amazing mothers. And so it's not to say that adolescence is what causes this difficulty, but having difficulties in adolescence with an adolescent pregnancy. So I think offering those extra supports, offering an ability to to boost our adolescents and their circumstances will give our children or their children the greatest chance. Yes, and I think that's the whole issue of the cycle of pathology, the cycle of poverty. And I think from our conversations, we're starting, well, I'm starting to understand or have started or understood just how important the health of the nation is in terms of these foundational uh, issues being properly understood and properly addressed. I wanted to touch on something now which is which is also not an easy uh, issue, and and that is the one of termination of pregnancy and abortion in these youngsters. The legal route versus the back street. You know, what has your kind of experience been in in, in that sense? So I think what's so important is that we need young girls to have a sense of um, independent decision-making. And I think what's important is we need to equip them with the skills in order to be able to look after themselves. I think that starts in our education from a sexual education point of view. Studies have been done throughout the world and approaches that only look at abstinence and look at shaming girls for having sexual intercourse and only look at trying to delay onset of sexual debut have not been effective in any country um, when researched. And the only... Um, education that is useful is an education that includes multiple different options. Mm -hmm. So, for example, we can include reasons why abstinence might be a good idea, but also include access to contraception. And that includes access to emergency contraception, which is a termination of pregnancy. The problem is our girls aren't aware of these things. They aren't even aware of changes in their body of how even the signs of that they may be pregnant. And I sure. think that speaks to our level of education not being sufficient. If women or young girls have access to contraception, then obviously our need for termination of pregnancy 
decreases because they have a greater chance of deciding when they want to have a pregnancy and having some decision-making on when it's the right time in them, when in their lives they would be willing to. We have a lot of um, pregnancy that is a consequence, for example, of rape, of right. incest, of sexual abuse. And I think these women especially, you can imagine how that would affect your attachment to a child Absolutely. in the future. And I think yep. they also need to have access to means, for example, Termination in an early pregnancy where they would then be able to decide whether they were able to look after this child or not and how it would affect them in their lives. So I think that termination is something that um, is something that has to be an individual choice. Mm. Obviously, the earlier access, our law dictates that um, you know, a woman can choose a termination in our first trimester. In a second trimester, they have to be legitimate and um, sort of both um, medical as well as psychosocial um, concerns, and then obviously we don't um, in our country support sort of late um, yes, termination. terminations from a legal point of view. Women are going to try to do what they can um, in terms of their situation, and the problem is because women are not, or these young girls are not aware of safe options for termination. They are seeking termination um, in very unsafe ways, right. and that results in very high risk to themselves, to the infant um, of death. So. Um, they are going to sources which are not safe, where they get um, physically um, damaged, where the wrong medication is given at the wrong times of pregnancy, and that results in really quite catastrophic um, consequences. So I think that being able to guide women toward, or young girls towards access to services that are safe um, is quite vital. Well, I think it is vital, and I think that there's kind of like a paradox because we have very progressive laws and policy and yet we still have a lot of these difficulties and problems in terms of access because potentially of lack of knowledge or because of staff attitudes. We don't necessarily have youth-friendly services. And I think so that is, for me, one of one of the issues. And, and we're not in any way promoting uh, – Pregnancy, because we have youth-friendly services in this age group. But what we are saying is that where this might happen, we need youth-friendly services to be able to understand what has gone on and how to effectively deal and manage any of the difficulties that, that might arise. So, as I said, we have progressive laws, but we don't necessarily have progressive attitudes in, in, in that respect. And, and, and so, I mean, that that's, again, a question of education and obviously, one has to accept that there may be prevailing attitudes towards these kinds of situations that could deter a youngster from approaching an appropriate setting to accomplish a better outcome. What about parents in all of this? Because we're talking as if there are no parents involved. And for me, this is, okay, so where are the parents? Because we're looking at governments, we're looking at non-governmental organizations, you know, we're looking at the schools. What about the parents? So that's my question. Yeah, so, I mean, I think we, in terms of parents, their involvement when it is an adolescent case is obviously vital. Yeah. Um, we do have a lot of situations where there aren't parents, and I think that is important to notice in these sort of child-headed households um, where they perhaps isn't access to, to parent care amongst these adolescents, but where there is, I think their involvement is important. This is quite complicated. So there, again, we have a lot of experience where adolescents are then sort of the decision-making is taken away from them. So, for example, the family won't approve 
the use of a termination, for right. example, or even adoption. And so there's a sense of kind of um, shaming a young adolescent who got yourself into this trouble. Now you have to deal with it, but that right. is a consequence that is for the rest of their lives. So it's quite um, a complicated consequence. Um, then there are families who who are able to to help and to intervene and to help a woman, a young girl, develop skills in terms of parenting. Also, maybe parents that are prepared to take responsibility for the children and then allow, for example, their right. adolescent daughter to return to school. So I think that's what we want to enhance. So the the parents' involvement has to be um, to the level that we can then understand their own emotional response to the adolescent falling pregnant and support them through that, offer access to, for example, support services in terms of how to make um, caring for the child more possible to brainstorm different options, what options there are to support them in reaching out to schools in order to facilitate um, the child having access to school, continued access to school, etc., and then also really helping them think of this infant and what its trajectory might be like. So really, how does that child fit in? Who's going to care for that child? And how is that going to play out in the future? Quite an investment in time, effort, money. And so without wishing to sound pessimistic, it does sound quite idealistic. So I think we know all the theory. And I suppose it's about converting theory into practice. So, Karina... Alex, thank you very much for joining us today. And I know that I've painted a somewhat bleak picture in in, in some ways, but that's not really what the intention was. Because I think that life is best understood as it is. These are some of the realities. And if we want real solutions, we need to get real. Often, for there to be change, we need to move into what I would call the discomfort zone. So let me close with a few challenging words from a psychiatrist and concentration camp survivor who is a personal favorite of mine, Viktor Frankl, and taken from his book, Man's Search for Meaning, where he describes logotherapy, a form of psychotherapy which he developed. The patient must hear things which sometimes are very disagreeable to hear. And here I think we can substitute the word patient for society. Remember, there is no health without mental health. I hope today's podcast has been enlightening. I am Professor Christopher Paul Sabo. This is Beyond Madness in proud association with Adcock Ingram OTC, sponsors of Brave.